Isn't it a blessed morning that we each been given today to come together? And these songs that we've already sung, how uplifting, how encouraging. Faith is the victory. That was the first one in which we sung it together a moment ago. Following that, we notice that beautiful refrain in which we appreciate that great home in heaven, holding hands, of course, throughout that marvelous time. I hope all of us have been encouraged in these ways. And maybe for the next few moments to reflect even upon what Christians are, the title I've given to the lesson this morning. Of course, this introductory slide will hopefully set our mind to appreciating the direction in which the lesson will, will proceed. The word Christian is by far the greatest name, the greatest appellation that any individual might ever be called. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that there are many things that you and I might well be described as in life. He or she is a wife, a father, a husband, a mother, an employee, an employer. But you know, there's nothing, no description that comes close in value and in greatness to being called a Christian. I hope over the next few moments you and I can be reminded of how great that is as we look at a few of the descriptions. And obviously, all of these are going to challenge every one of us. In fact, you and I might ask as we look one by one at these descriptions, how am I doing at this? Am I behaving as a Christian should? Or am I falling short? And if we find ourselves falling short, may we make appropriate changes, repentance, moving in the direction in which we too can be what Christians are. The first one begins like this. From Acts eleven twenty six, we learn this initial truth. You remember that. And as much as that description was given about the name Christian, the first time in all the Bible that that word occurs is in this passage. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And you and I learn a great deal about a Christian based on that passage. Isn't it true that one of the first things we appreciate is this, a Christian is a disciple. Have you ever thought of yourself as a disciple? Surely you and I must be if we're to be pleasing unto God. But that begs the question, really, what is a disciple? Well, let's spend a few moments reflecting on not only that word, but reflecting also on some needs of understanding what that means for you and for me. First of all, in Matthew 10, 24, we learn on that occasion that a disciple is not above his Lord. Now, you and I understand that well. In a classroom setting or in some other situation, the student is not above the teacher. If he is, something's not right. You ever remember a situation maybe when there was a teacher who was sufficiently mild-mannered and who was sufficiently passive that the students would take advantage of him or her? That's not good. And so you notice here Jesus said, The disciple is not above his Lord. You and I must appreciate then that as disciples we truly are those, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ and you and I as a disciple. The word literally means a learner, a pupil. You and I, you see, are those who learn. We are those who are students. We are pupils in the classroom of Jesus Christ our Savior. To develop some of those points at the bottom, it might do us well to notice the behavior of some of the disciples in the Bible. 
in Luke 11, verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Teach us something. Isn't it true that a disciple then, as a pupil, loves to be taught by the Master? What a point of application that is. How are you and I doing at that? Do we love to be taught by Jesus? Do we love and thrill at the thought of learning what He has to say? And being sure to be present at every time the people are meeting who are honoring Him by studying His Word. How am I doing at that? What are your plans for 5.30 tonight? What about 7 o'clock Wednesday night? Have you already made plans to be a disciple so you can learn from the blessed Word of God? Not only that, you'll notice in Acts 9 verse 6, on that occasion it was none other than Paul himself. And it was there that he said, Lord, what will you have me to do? He was so interested in learning what the Master, who was Jesus, had to say to him. As you and I apply this matter, this interesting issue of being a disciple to ourselves, you'll notice that the Bible also seemingly attaches the thought of an apprentice to the concept of a disciple. Now you and I know what an apprentice is. When there's a person who wants to learn a new job, you may well go and shadow a skilled, experienced person so that over a period of time you can learn very clearly from an expert on what is involved in that job. Well, notice in John 8, 31 as well as John 13, 14, Jesus on that occasion commented about being a disciple and highlighted how great it is that you and I could hear Jesus say this, you go and do likewise. In other words, you've seen me do it, you go do it. Doesn't that sound like an apprenticeship? Every one of us that is disciples, somewhat in excitement, appreciate what's involved in the nature of being a disciple, a pupil, a learner of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's close that slide in this way. In the ancient world... It was a rather common thing for school arrangements to be at least somewhat similar to those that we appreciate today. There was a teacher, there was a master, if you please, and the students would gather often at the feet of that teacher and listen to him teach and listen to him present his theology or at least his ideas. You notice that idea is not foreign to the Scriptures. We still are admonished to do that. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is incumbent upon us as learners that we seek to rightly divide this. It's not our business ever to read into it or present into it what we think it says, but rather what it says. And so a disciple... A Christian as a disciple is our first lesson of the morning. What about a second one? What else is a Christian? This one is not always an easy thing to consider. But the second occurrence of the word Christian, in the, I'm sorry, the third occurrence of the, new, of the word Christian in the New Testament is taken from 1 Peter 4. It is in that context we read this. In a rather powerful passage, the Apostle Peter made this statement. As he spoke about the happiness that came with Christianity, he had these interesting words to say. He said, If any man suffer as a Christian, 
Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. And you'll notice, he said, there's suffering that's going to come with being a Christian. That's the second point of our lesson. Christians are those who suffer. Now let's build some appreciation about that because it's a very needful thing. It prepares us in light of circumstances that we face in life. Let's begin in John 17, 16. Jesus very powerfully said on that night that He prayed prior to His crucifixion, Lord, as He prayed in light of those apostles, I pray that Thou would not take them out of the world, but that they would not be of the world. There was something unique, something peculiar, something different about those apostles. Though they lived in this world, they were not to be of it. May I suggest that's the same principle needful for you and me. Though we live on this planet earth, and though we live in society, and though we live in a various and sundry ways in contact with others, we must not be of this world. For if we are, then we are not of God. No wonder you'll notice in 1 Peter 2.20, when it comes to suffering, the following statement is made. I'd like us to read a pair of verses found on that occasion. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 20. For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. It's not difficult to understand the apostle's teaching. If you and I do something against the law and we do something wrong and we suffer for that, he said, well, what big deal is it if you're suffering for a crime you've committed? But he said, if you do what's right, and if you do what's right, well, and if you do what's godly, and you still suffer for it, that then means that you, in the attitude of that patience, and in the attitude of that direction in life, you have behaved well. May you and I not be surprised then when we suffer as Christians. I realize that the kind of suffering that we face may be very much different, for instance, than what the ancient world endured, where Christians were put to death, where they were willfully beaten in a public way. That may not happen to you and me, I confess. But there are other kinds of suffering, sometimes emotional, sometimes verbal. Don't be surprised when you suffer as a Christian. In 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm sorry, verse 12 of that chapter. The point is made that yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's in essence a part of the territory. If you're a Christian, there are going to be moments of challenge, of difficulty, of suffering. As you and I come near the close of that slide, may I list or at least bring to our mind a number of examples drawn from Hebrews 11. Now you remember, that's the honor roll of faith. And one by one, these great individuals of the Old Testament lore are mentioned. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Joshua, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, Jephthah, and on and on the list goes. And yet the point that the author makes in verse 38 is these suffered. Oftentimes enormously persecuted. And yet his point is 
They, without you, Christian, are not made perfect. You and I have something today that they never had. As great a man as Noah was, we have today what he never did. As great as Abraham was, we have today a blessing that he would have longed for and never had. I say all of that in part because you and I have got the church and they never lived to see it. As you and I close that slide, what else might we say about Christians? First, they're disciples. Secondly, they're sufferers. What about number three? A Christian is a person who is persuaded. Let me explicitly say what I mean by that. A Christian is a person who is persuaded. The development proceeds like this. That word persuaded in this context means convicted. A person who is a Christian is a person who is sure about some things and there is no compromise to it. Would you appreciate the meaning and the valor of life that comes with that statement? For example, Christians don't waffle on some things. Now you and I know in the world in which we live, the common mantra that's so often put before us is be tolerant. Just because someone is different than you, they see things different than you do, you've got to understand, appreciate they're a person of a different background and tolerate them. From the point of view of the Bible, that's rubbish. That just isn't biblical truth. Now we understand for certain things that are not a matter of faith and doctrine, we must be tolerant. If it's just someone's opinion. But when it comes to a thus saith the Lord, a Christian is persuaded. That person is convicted because it's no longer their will. It's a thus saith the Lord. This is what God has declared and this is what I'm going to do. The world may not appreciate it. In fact, they may insult me before because of it, but I'm doing it God's way because that's what faith is. One of the best descriptions, it seems to me, we can ever appreciate concerning faith. It's true that it's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, but being a person of faith is saying, God, I'm going to do it your way because you've said to do it that way. Human reason may try to figure out a better way. Human reason may say, well, it doesn't matter. But a person of faith will never feel that way because we are convicted and we are persuaded. Look at this verse. In 2 Peter 1 verse 10, Brethren, make your calling and election sure. Did you hear in that? A Christian's persuaded. A Christian's convicted. A Christian in confidence then is ready to appreciate passages like this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now there are four elements of that passage. Did you notice several of them have the idea of correction? And so in the world quite often someone says, What right do you have to say that I'm not right about this? And yet as a Christian, you and I are absolutely convicted. It isn't my judgment. My friend, according to the Bible, what you're doing is not right. And we are absolutely convinced of this because the Bible says so. There's a great deal of difference in that perspective, isn't there? There are individuals who have interesting observations about worship. Some of 
individuals, of course, use mechanical instruments of music in worship. And, of course, they are quick to say, well, you choose not to use it. I choose to use it. Does it make any difference? I don't think it does. And you and I, with an open Bible, are ready to say, I not only think it makes a difference, I know it does because there's no authority for it. Do you see the conviction in it? And you and I as Christians feel this way. We're never haughty or unkind about it, but we're convicted in the Word of God. That conviction leads us to close that slide and notice, in application to worship, in application to the plan of salvation, maybe you have had conversation with individuals who in light, for instance, of confession and baptism will say, well, I think that you're saved at the point of belief. And you and I, in honesty and yet in earnestness, would say, I know that isn't right. It isn't a matter of what you or I think. It's a matter of what the Bible says, and I am persuaded that God means what He says, and He says what He means. Christians are persuaded people. How persuaded are you and I? Are we wishy-washy on things of doctrine? Are we, for instance, in a position that we just no longer appreciate the conviction? Well, maybe it can be that way. Maybe the Lord is understanding. Maybe His grace will cover all of this. We must never believe that. When He has spoken, that settles the matter. There's no longer any room for discussion on it. And so Christians, in three ways so far, we're disciples, meaning we learn from the Master. We suffer in light of our conviction of Him. And finally, we're persuaded. What else is a Christian? Number four. In a way, we've already highlighted this one, at least in passing, but I thought some additional verses could be helpful. We are individuals who strive to be obedient. We strive, that is to say, to follow the commandments of that which has been given to us. Let's begin it like this. Isn't it true in the Word of God that in fact this is a matter that is demanded of us? If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Several verses later in John 14, 23, we are expressly said that we will be the friend of Jesus when and only when we do what He says. Are you a friend of Jesus? As a Christian, we all, of course, should strive to be. And yet, that demands that we obey Him. Obedience is a somewhat interesting concept, isn't it? I suppose it's somewhat natural to you know, do what some politicians and others do. I'll put up my finger and I'll gauge which way the discussion and the culture is going, and I'll do that because that'll make me popular. Following Jesus means we're not going to be popular. Following Jesus means we are going to be considered as an outcast because we are intolerant of a lot of the things that the world demands we tolerate. Look at what else we might notice in these verses. In 1 John 5, verse number 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. You and I never look upon the Word of God and say, I sure wish He hadn't said that, but I'll do it anyway. We thrill at the thought of doing what He says even if it's challenging because we love Him and we know He loved us. 
Inasmuch as Christians are then individuals who are striving to be obedient, the bottom of that slide points out these interesting passages. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. What does that mean? Revelation 2.10, we see it exemplified in Revelation 22.14. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. How does that describe me? And what about you? Am I striving daily to be obedient? Or do I much more look upon Christianity as a kind of glorified spiritual vacation? I'll basically do what I want to do more or less through the week, and then on Sunday I'll make everything right by praying about it. That's not a good attitude. That's not the right attitude. May I ask it this way? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6 verse 1. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You see, as we who strive to be obedient, we can't just live habitually in sin. As you and I come near the close of that slide, isn't there a dramatic promise etched before us in Hebrews as well as seed exemplified in Acts chapter 20? Those first century disciples who were learners, who were sufferers, who were those who were striving to do what they ought to do, what did they do? On the first day of the week, they met and they worshiped and they listened to preaching and they did those things that were becoming of Christianity. Today, though you and I live 20 centuries past that point, we still strive to do the same. Because isn't it true in Hebrews 5.8 we read, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered in being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation. To who? To all who obey Him. If we don't obey Him, we cannot expect to enter heaven. So far we've looked at four things then that Christians are. What about a fifth one? We would be remiss not to at least bring this one to the highlight as well. As Christians strive to obey, and as Christians strive to learn, that is to say their disciples... We are quick to appreciate the fact that we are imperfect. Of my own volition and of my capability, I will never be sinless. And with confidence, I can say that you won't be either. But yet as Christians, we appreciate the fact that the Bible teaches the following. You and I should listen to this. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In 1 John 1 verse 8 we read, If a man say he has not sinned, he is a liar. We've all sinned. We're all guilty of imperfection. We're guilty of foolish judgments on occasion. We're guilty of taking the wrong course. We're guilty of overt sin. Point is, as a Christian, I don't deny that. In part, isn't it interesting that our world sometimes has this image, well, these Christian people, they're supposed to be perfect. They ought never say anything wrong, go anywhere wrong, do anything wrong, even think anything wrong. But you and I as Christians know better than that. The Bible teaches I can't be that way, despite my best effort. But rather, I appreciate the fact, and so too I know you do as well. This imperfection leads us to note this. 
in James 1 verse 26. Notice James writing to those who were Christians said, If any man offend not in word, he is a perfect man. Bridling of the tongue. Do you ever have trouble with that? Do you ever struggle with that? I know I constantly have to work upon that. Maybe you do as well. What about your temper? Do you have to work on that? Is that a challenge for you? May I say, all of us have some avenue in life, something that causes us particular challenge. What we understand is I don't make excuses for that. If I lose my temper, if I say what I ought not say, as a Christian, I don't try to excuse it and say, well, God understands. I'll beg His forgiveness, apologize to the one whom I've offended that way and beseech that person's forgiveness because I understand as a Christian, I'm not perfect that way. That imperfection leads us to note this. Isn't it true? Even the church in the first century era has this idea about it. Think about the Corinthian congregation. As often as you and I have noted, they had their misappreciations whether it be their observance of the Lord's Supper, whether it be their understanding of the spiritual gifts, whether it be their implication relative to divorce and remarriage, they sometimes made their mistakes. But did that mean that the Lord forgot them? No, He sent Paul to them to teach them that they might be what they ought to have been. In the book of Revelation, seven churches of Asia are mentioned, and of that group, how often do you and I remember they had problems? The church in Ephesus had left its first love. The church in Thyatira had accepted a false teacher named Jezebel. The church in Pergamos were accepting of the Nicolaitan doctrine. The Lord said, I hate that doctrine. And He urged them, you've got to repent. My point in saying that is, as Christians, we know we aren't sinlessly perfect. But isn't it true, we never make excuses for these disobediences. We don't try to whitewash them and pretend that they aren't so. We rather try to humble ourselves and strive to make things right. We say words like, I'm sorry. I wish I hadn't said that and I apologize. Will you forgive me? Or we're quick to say, even as we approach God in prayer, in light of a thought we've had, though nobody else on earth knows it, He does. And we pray, God, I want to do better. I don't want to think about these things. I want You to help strengthen me. Lead me the passages in Thy Word, wherein I will learn to think on things that I should. God, help me interact with other people. Sometimes these people at school... They're so mean. They're heartless. They act in an ugly, ungodly way, and I don't want to act like that. Help me know what to say. Help me approach those conversations in the best way so that I can influence them for good. But please help me be strong that I never do what they're doing. You see, as Christians, we just acknowledge our imperfections and we pray God to help us overcome them. For we know only in the blood of Christ will we ever have forgiveness. As you and I close that slide, isn't it true that we can even see this embodied in various qualifications found, say, for deacons or even for elders? And maybe we'll reserve that for a more extended discussion, but I did want us to highlight the sixth one and the final one in the lesson today. 
These other five things have shown many things that Christians are, but this last one, number five, now leads us to the final one, number six. Christians are forgiven. You noticed in the lesson text that Brother Andrew read earlier from 1 John 2. Could I invite you to note again that brief little verse? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, you for His name's sake. And that has to bring a smile to the face of us who are Christians. We're forgiven people. My failures and my mistakes, my errors in judgment and my choices that were unwise, as long as I'm walking in the light, I am promised that the blood of Christ will cleanse my sins. And I'm able to live each day confident and comfortable in knowing that I'm destined for heaven. A Christian's a forgiven person. And let's develop some of those thoughts this way. We have the confident expectation of heaven. Isn't it true that in Romans 8, 24, it is said to us, we are saved by hope. What's your hope? Be honest now. Are you hoping for a pay raise? And that's as far in the distance as your hope extends. Are you hoping to buy some new item, a car, a tractor, a piece of land? And that's as far as your hope extends as a Christian, my friend. Your hope goes far beyond anything this world has to offer, for your destiny is etched in the annals of heaven. Our hope is there. And that hope is presented to us in the Word of the Gospel, Colossians 1.5. Surely as we develop that point, we understand that our salvation doesn't hinge on my absolute perfection. Let's face it. If entering into heaven depends on me living sinlessly perfect, I nor anybody else ever has any hope of heaven. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But what we know is that we've got to make a diligent, valiant, committed, dedicated effort to serving the Lord and following Him. And when we do, He promises us in a passage like this one. 1 John 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son continues to cleanse us from all sin. Now I interpreted what the verb tense is at the latter part of that verse. The King James actually reads it cleanseth us, but that's present tense, ongoing action. His blood constantly cleanses you and me as Christians from sin. That means you and I can appreciate this. And maybe you have individuals wonder about it. Suppose I'm a Christian and I'm driving along and a person cuts me off and I have a bad thought right before I'm killed in a car wreck. Will I go to hell? Will I be eternally lost because I had a bad thought and didn't have time to ask God to forgive me? No! The blood of Christ constantly cleanses you and me from sin as long as we're walking in the light but we must be walking in the light. We can't be deliberately sinning. We can't be choosing to live unfaithfully. One other verse then is this one. You'll appreciate as I read 1 John 1, 7. 
1 John 5, 13 says it like this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. John in the first century wrote to these individuals and said, you can know that you have eternal life. That begins as you obey the gospel. Have you done that? Only the blood of Christ can cleanse and forgive sin. But you must contact, of course, that blood. And it only happens in baptism according to Galatians 3. Have you been baptized? We're about to close this sermon and it's the time of invitation. If there's anybody in this audience who isn't a Christian, these six things are not descriptive of you. And the last one's hurtful. That means you're not forgiven. That means all your imperfections are being etched one by one in, in the hallmark books of heaven. I wonder how many mistakes and sins you've committed in your life. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, and God's got a record of every one of them unless they've been forgiven. But when they're forgiven, they're erased. He no longer even remembers them because they no longer are in His memory banks. And God's memory is perfect don't you want to be forgiven of those things? If you've never become a Christian, obey the gospel today. Believe with all of your heart Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you've become a Christian, though, and you're unfaithful, notice you have forsaken then some of these items. And may I say again, the last one's the most troubling. Because if you have chosen to live deliberately chosen to live in sin, that means you have forfeited the salvation of the blood of Christ, Hebrews 10.26. Rest assured that's eternally fatal. You've got to repent and you've got to come back to your first love. And we today would be honored to pray to God for you. God commands that you confess those things and repent of them. And as we pray to God on your behalf, He again has assured you He'll forgive them and you can live faithfully again with Him. This time of encouragement is now before us and I hope each of us have been encouraged to appreciate what Christians are and that we might live faithful to that calling. And if we could help in any way today to anyone in the audience, we would urge you to let us know the way we can and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.